Godfrey Davis was a British author who wrote one of the most compelling and complete biographies on the Duke of Wellington. When asked what was the reason for his book's success as well as the insights that were found in it, he said, I found an old account ledger that showed how the Duke spent his money. It was a far better clue to what he thought was really important than the reading of his letters or speeches. I want to start by just putting a proposition on on the table this morning. And it's simply this. How you and I spend our money reveals much about our priorities and values. In fact, it reveals our priorities and our values much more than our talk. This is an election year, and I'm always amazed at politicians who, when their tax returns are revealed, it's discovered the paltry, embarrassingly low amounts of money that they give to charity. I'm not going to mention who. One is a Republican, the other a Democrat, so we're going to pick on them equally. But there was a Republican who was vocal, pompous, and arrogant, and who always wore his Christianity on his sleeve, and between he and his wife, they made $249,000. They gave $995 to their church, which, by the way, was their most generous year. And his story is yet not unique. That was a Republican. So to pick on him equally, one of the leading Democratic contenders in 2018 made $561,293 and gave to charity, drumroll please, $18,500. Can I just say how you spend your money reveals your priorities and what it is you view as important. Which is why Jesus talked about money. Someone has estimated that one-sixth of the Gospels, including one out of every three parables, touches on the topic of stewardship. And Jesus did that not because he was a fundraiser or a shakedown artist, as some people think, but because money and your stewardship of it reveals who you really are as a person. And the question is simply this. Does your checkbook show that Jesus is the master of your life? If we were to do a check of your checkbook this morning, what would it tell us about you? To check on your heart, check your checkbook. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, we don't talk about money a lot here, but I really felt the need because it has been a long time. And I'm not doing this because we're running short. Fact of the matter is we are doing remarkably well as a church. Now, that doesn't mean you should stop giving because there's a lot more that we want to accomplish. It really is. But you know what concerns me? There's a lot of folks out there who have yet to 
to learn the joy and the blessing of giving and being a good steward of our resources. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at one of the parables that Jesus talked about regarding the proper handling of our finances. And it's the parable of the shrewd manager that's found in Luke 16. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn there. Now, most scholars agree that this particular parable is one of the more difficult parables that Jesus gave. It's a difficult one to interpret. And some have thought that what what Jesus here is doing is condoning this manager's seemingly unethical behavior. And yet, as we're going to see as we examine this carefully, that indeed is not the case. What Jesus does in this parable is he calls for us to be shrewd, to be smart, to be on top of our game when it comes to money, and to leverage our resources on earth so we'll improve our futures in heaven. Friend, Jesus told this parable of the shrewd manager to his disciples while the Pharisees were eavesdropping. In fact, you see that clearly in chapter 15, verse 1. Because there, the the Pharisees were complaining about Jesus being associated with the down-and-outers, the outcasts, the unwashed, the peons, the, the sinners of his day. And so what Jesus does to demonstrate his love for sinners is he tells them three parables about lost things. And he says that's the way God feels about lost people. And then following those parables, Jesus gives this particular parable in the hearing of everyone present, especially the Pharisees who were still listening. Again, they were probably off to the side a little bit with their heads kind of cocked towards Jesus so they could hear him. They were eavesdropping. And he gives this parable to them. And the key... To understanding this parable is that statement in verse 8 that's right at the end of the parable itself where Jesus says at the end of verse 8 he says for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light now friend That is the key phrase for understanding this parable. And Jesus begins this parable with the statement that there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possession. That word for manager is a Greek word, which means house steward. It means somebody who has been put in charge Very often, a wealthy owner in the first century, a wealthy landowner or somebody with lots of money would put a steward in charge of his estate. And he would run things. This guy was an employee of an absentee landlord. And because he was in charge, he had been given control over his master's businesses as well as his assets. And his responsibility was to further his master's interests and not his own. 
And apparently in this parable that Jesus told, this man had evidently diverted some funds for his own purposes and pleasures. The temptation proved to be too strong, and so he wasted his master's money. He violated a trust that had been given to him, and he mishandled his master's possessions. Well, the owner gets wind of this serious mismanagement. And so we're told that he calls him in and he asks him, what is this that I hear about you? He says, I want you to give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Interesting, we're not told exactly what the offense was. We're not told if there was a a whistleblower within the organization. But somehow this owner hears about the mismanagement on the part of this manager. Maybe it was kickbacks. Maybe he padded his expense account. But in any event, there was enough discrepancies in the ledgers that the money was not being managed properly. And so that was a a, a real critical issue on the part of this man. There had been mismanagement. And so what happens is that he, this, this manager, the owner rather, demands from the manager his resignation. Let me just pause right here and say that mismanagement in business is a serious, serious problem. I read this past week that according to the U.S. Department of Commerce, American businesses today suffer the loss of more than $50 billion per year due to employee theft. $50 billion. That, by the way, doesn't include the mismanagement on the part of government. But don't get me started. Additionally, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce estimates that 75% of all employees steal at least once. And half of those 75% become repeat offenders. Friend, that means that 30% of employees regularly steal from their employers. Additionally, the Chamber reported that one out of every three businesses that fail do so as a result of employee theft. So it's a problem. Well, this man's mismanagement was intentional, it was deliberate, and it was big. This wasn't just taking a pen or a pencil or stapler or paper clips. This was something that seriously cut in on the bottom line. And, and so this man, when confronted with the charge of dereliction of duty, really doesn't have an answer for it. And he's going to lose his job. And so what he does is he comes up with a plan. Now, normally today, modern-day companies, when they, they fire an employee, Generally, they clean out their desk on the spot or have it done for them. They're marched to the door. They surrender their keys, their laptops, their cell phones, their company car if they have one. But that wasn't the case here. This man is given a window of opportunity. His dismissal is inevitable. 
but it's not yet final, nor is it public. And so this man is given a little bit of wiggle room, but the time is short. There's no time for him to waste. And so what he does is he acts shrewdly, and he comes up with a plan. And he says, I know what I'm going to do when I lose my job. What I'm going to do is he, he sizes up the situation rather quickly. He founds his, himself desperately lacking in marketable skills. He realizes that physically he's unable or emotionally unwilling to dig for a living. You know, he didn't want to get his fingernails dirty. He's too proud to beg for alms on the corner, which, by the way, is interesting. You know, he was too proud to beg, but he wasn't too proud to steal. Isn't that interesting? So he comes up with a bright idea. He realizes that he could win some important friends and influence his insecure future by coming up with a plan that is probably best summed up by the old adage, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. And what he does is he calls his master's customers and he begins to alter their bill. Some people have asked the question, how could he do that? Well, he still had the legal authority to do that. He had the authority to act on behalf of his master's behalf, which is exactly what he does. See verse 5, it says he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. He cuts the bill in half. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. Take your bill. Let's lop off 200 bushels. Make it 800. It says the master commended the dishonest manager because, the, because he had acted shrewdly. You know, I've often wondered why one guy got a 50% discount and the other only got 20, but that's what happened. And the key, I think, to understanding this is to understand first century business practices. And commentators have had a lot of fun with this and tried to figure it out. We really don't know exactly what the reason was. But what he did here was subtle and was also semi-legal. And probably the best way to explain this is that sometimes, not always, but sometimes wealthy businessmen would, during difficult economic times, write off a portion of their client's debt in order to be considered generous. And so these people probably thought that's what was happening here. Remember, they don't know that this guy has been shown the door. He's still managing the estate. And he realizes that once word gets out that this guy really shouldn't have been doing that, rather than lose face, he decides that he'll just go ahead and honor it. Others have suggested that what this man had done, according to the Mosaic Law, you remember that Jewish businessmen were not allowed to charge interest to a fellow Jew. 
And so what they would do is they would have sort of some add-on expenses that they would give. So that would be a way that they could avoid the pain of interest, but they could still make some money. And now, if indeed that's the case, it may be that this steward simply is discounting the add-ons that had been given. And because these were things that, that you could do in the first century, uh, this, this manager was doing that. And it's quite interesting that when this master tells him that, he says the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. That term dishonest, I think, is referring to the actions that had happened previous to this. And he sort of says, you know what? Um, you're a pretty smart little fellow. Doesn't say that he was happy with his actions, but he was impressed. And so the dishonest actions refer to his actions prior to this. And he says, you're to be commended because you acted shrewdly. That word means with forethought, with foresight. It's used to speak of the wise man who built his house upon a rock in anticipation of the storm. It was used to describe the five wise virgins who brought extra oil, anticipating future needs. In other words, this man acted decisively in his present state to position himself for the future. He was astute. He was smart. He was clever with his money. Now, Jesus is not here saying, go out and be purposefully deceptive. What Jesus is commending here is a man who acted with foresight. Somebody who was proactive. Somebody who took the initiative. Somebody who did sort of a Stephen Covey move, you know, kind of a win-win plan for everybody. He took a situation and he turned it around to the advantage of each party involved. And you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, that's what I want you to do as my people. I want you to earn the right to share your faith by using your resources to build relationships so you can share your faith. See what he says in verse 9 here? Here's really one of the key verses of this. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, we need to do that. Now, what I want to do in the time that remains is I want to share with you five applications of this. And the first one is just a general run. And we've listed them there for you in your outline. Number one, when it comes to money, act like a manager, not like an owner. When it comes to money, when it comes to possessions, act like a manager of that money, not like an owner. 
In fact, that is a basic principle that is foundational to everything Jesus taught in the Gospels regarding money and possessions. None of us owns anything. God owns everything, and we are simply the managers of it. And it is our privilege to use what God lets us have. But we are never to treat it as if it belongs to us. We're managers. We're accountable to God. And God expects us to report back to Him on a regular basis to let Him know how we are caring for His possessions. Let me see if I can illustrate it. Let's suppose my car and Connie's car both go down and they're not operational. You get wind of that and you say, Doug, I've got a car I'd like. I'd like to loan it to you. It's yours for as long as you need it. Now, you know what Connie and I need to do when it comes to that vehicle? We need to drive it with you in mind. That means that we don't park it illegally so that it gets a ticket and you have to pay for it. We don't travel to Grand Junction to see our grandkids by way of Cheyenne, Omaha, Kansas City, and Denver. What's more, when we give that car back to you, we return it with a tank full of gas, with the outside having been washed and the inside having been vacuumed. We return that vehicle to you better than when we got it. Because you know what? If we treat that car well, car well, perhaps you'll let us borrow it again when our cars go down. And friend, it's the same way when it comes to the possessions that God gives us. Christians are to consider all the money and all the possessions that we have as belonging to God. That means we take care of the house that God gives us to live in. We take care of the cars that he gives us to drive, the clothes that we wear, the golf clubs that we play golf with, the skis with which we ski with. Friend, everything we have is his. And how we manage things is a reflection on him. Have you ever looked at it this way? God's reputation is at stake when it comes to how you and I manage our possessions. Because you know what? He can have it back anytime he wants, whenever he wants. We're accountable to him. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, It is required that those who have been given a trust must prove themselves faithful. There's a second lesson, and it's this. God desires us to use money temporarily as a vehicle to accomplish permanent good. Look at verse 8 and 9. Again, Jesus says, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, now listen, this is Jesus Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
Have you ever looked at it this way, that shrewdness with money can achieve eternal goals? This manager used his position, his power, and his possessions to make friends who would stick by him when he was fired. He didn't have any money. He didn't have a job. He didn't have a place to live. You know what he needed? He needed friends who would take care of him. And this, and we'll call him a mismanager, was smart enough to figure out what mattered most to him, and that was friends. And so you know what he did? He invested in people. He gave them clever discounts. And he had creative bookkeeping. And what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is telling us to figure out what really matters and be really smart about what we do. Again, we're not dishonest, but having friends is good. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 9. He's saying, use your worldly wealth to gain friends. We use our money in ways that will pay off forever in heaven. You know, maybe you've never thought of it this way, but every believer will be welcomed into heaven by their friends. But not all will have the same number of friends to welcome them. Because you know what? Some have been stingy with what it is God gave them. I must tell you, I've been in ministry now for over 40 years, and one of the most satisfying experiences I have in life, one of the most satisfying experiences, is to visit a community where I once served and have people come up to me and tell me of the influence that I had on them. And oftentimes that influence is, is unguessed and unrecognized. And you know what? That's what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. And what Jesus is saying here is we need to give to God. We need to use our money to make more Christians. We need to use our money in light of eternal consequences. We need to think of heaven when we're spending here on earth. I remember reading about a pastor who conducted a funeral, and the wife of the deceased asked if she could speak. And she brought to the memorial service a large stack of books and magazines, and she took them up to the platform and she placed them down there and she began to talk about her husband's long and losing fight against cancer cancer and she then talked about how he had a chair and there was a a reading pile next to that favorite chair that he sat in and she held up GQ magazine and she talked about how her husband dressed well and all the expensive clothes that were in his closet and then she dropped the magazine to the floor and said he didn't care about that anymore. Then she held up a catalog from expensive automakers and talked about the luxury cars that were in their garage. And she threw those catalogs away. She held up golf magazines and ski magazines 
And she said they were no longer important to him. She did the same with the investment magazines and the stockholder annual reports. And one by one, she dropped all of those books and magazines on the floor until she got to his Bible. And she said that he came to the point in his life where his Bible was the only book he wanted next to his chair. In other words, as he got closer to heaven, he switched his priorities. And he was more concerned about the relationships that would be his in heaven than the relationships that he had here on earth. And that's what Jesus is saying here in this parable. Jesus is telling us not to, to not only die this way, but also to live this way. He's saying be really smart about the things that really matter. We need to strategize. We need to plan. We need to use ingenuity and creativity when it comes to the resources that God has given us. We neither spend nor give carelessly, sentimentally, or impulsively. When it comes to our giving and our investments, we're hard-nosed, we're clear-eyed, we're forward-thinking, we're astute, generous people. You know, last night, I looked on the internet and I saw a video clip. And it was from the movie The Gladiator. And in that particular movie, the Roman general Maximus is getting ready to lead a charge against one of the many German tribes that he was fighting. And he's riding through the forest on this beautiful horse, and there's a number of men with him, and he comes up to his army. And he's sitting on his stallion, and he shouts to the cavalry. He says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. Wow. That is a great line. That is a great truth. Friend, what we do in life indeed echoes in eternity. How we use our resources determines our reward in the future. Let me suggest number three, believers who are faithful in small assignments will be given, be given bigger ones. See verse 10? Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who's going to trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Friend, if you're going to be given more resources and more responsibility, you've got to be faithful with the things that God currently is giving you. Remember our number one point? We're not owners, we're managers. And God gives us the responsibility to manage our resources here. From our job, to our home, to our automobiles, to everything we have. The money that we earn. And so we take care of it. We demonstrate our trustworthiness 
in the little things so that we will be given greater responsibilities. That means if God gives you an inheritance, you will show how careful you are with it so that when he gives you more, he knows he can trust you with it. If he gives you some of his possessions, you show honesty in caring for that and taking care of it. Friend, the issue is accountability. And if you're not going to take care of the, the seemingly insignificant little things, don't expect God to give you more. Friend, some are in the mess they're in today because they've just not been trustworthy. That's not Doug saying that. That's, that's Jesus, okay? So if you've got a problem, take it up with him. Just read those verses. I'm simply the messenger. Mark Galley writes in his book on St. Francis of Assisi, he said that Francis of Assisi became a key figure in the 13th century revival of the church, a church that was racked with moral corruption from the pope to the local priest. But it's interesting, he writes, to note how he began repairing the medieval church as a whole. He started with the little chapel in front of him. And then Galley writes, a lot of times we wish we could change the world. And who knows, maybe we are called to do that eventually. But we are wiser to follow the example of Francis of Assisi to do the little things, the simple things right in front of us, and let God take care of the world. I like that. Hudson Taylor said, a little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing is a great thing. And that's true. There's a fourth point, and it hardly needs a comment. It's found in verse 13. And that is, believers cannot divide their loyalty between two bosses. See what Jesus says? He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Friend, this is an issue on which there is no middle ground. Either God owns your wealth or it owns you. You can't have more than one master in your life. And Jesus Friend, Jesus just sets the record straight. He says you cannot serve both God and money. But you know what? Here's what's great about the whole teaching and stewardship and what Jesus has to say. Listen, when we choose the Lord as our sole master, he doesn't remove our money. What he does is he takes it and he transforms it into an ally instead of an enemy. That means that that $100 bill that might be in your billfold this morning that last weekend placed a bet or paid for a prostitute or purchased crack cocaine can this weekend be used to buy a Bible, support a missionary, or feed an orphan. And you know what? The choice is yours. Money and God both require our lordship. And neither will share their lordship with anyone. 
Again, as I was thinking about this, I thought, what if we were to ask 20 of your closest friends who know you, which is most important in their life, God or money? What would they say? Chances are they'd be able to give an answer and they would do so quickly. You know what Jesus is saying here is don't let money be your God. Again, there's nothing wrong with having money. Be a good steward of your money. Be a, be, be a good investor with your money. Believe in a simple principle called delayed gratification. You can't have it all. It's going to take some time. I'm still waiting. My dad had a boat. I'm still waiting to someday get a boat. Ain't going to happen though. <laughs> but don't ever let money be the most important thing in your life. Now there's one more principle and it's found in verses 14 and 15. And that is that God's value system differs from that of people. Look at verse 14. It says, The Pharisees who loved money and heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And Jesus said to them, You are the ones who justify yourself in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. You know what Jesus is saying here is don't, don't be like the Pharisees. They were self-righteous religious leaders that Jesus used as examples of what not to do. They heard all Jesus taught about money and they sneered at him. They thought they were smarter. They thought they were better. They thought they knew more about the topic than Jesus. And Jesus said they missed the entire point. Jesus knew about money. But friend, Jesus cared about the things that matter most. The Pharisees cared about what other men thought. Jesus cared about what God thought. The Pharisees loved money, and Jesus loved God. You know, this past week, I read about a man in Australia who was being considered for a position of leadership in a Christian organization. And they interviewed this man for a position in the organization. They checked his references. They did a background check. And everything came back really positive. They were following pretty much the standard of the world. But then the board came up with this ingenious idea. They asked the man if he would submit to them his checkbook and allow the CFO of this organization that was seeking him as a leader to look over his finances and to determine what it is that those books would reveal. Well, the man did so without hesitation. And at the end of the examination, they hired the man without hesitancy. Now, let me ask you this in closing. If that were asked of you, how would you do? How do you acquire money? What are you purchasing with your money? How are you giving your money? How are you investing your money? 
You know, it's often said that you can't take it with you, and that's true. But you can send it on ahead by investing in the people who are going to heaven and trying to make eternal friends and eternal rewards so that when you and I get to heaven, we're going to be greeted by people that we helped get there. Listen, fools serve money and leave it all behind. Shrewd believers serve God and invest in eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, this is a a parable that has really searched us this morning. And we know that Jesus told this story not to amuse us, but to instruct us and to enlighten us regarding this whole issue of money and stewardship. Thank you that this parable wasn't intended to condemn, but to unveil and reveal the truth about our stewardship. And so we pray, Lord, that you would take these truths and help us to deal with them seriously. You said this clearly. You said this plainly. And help us not to do interpretive gymnastics and try to uh, put a spin on this parable in a way that that Jesus never intended it to have. Help us to realize that having heard the truth this morning, we can find no defense in ignorance. Grant that we may have the grace to take these truths seriously and live them out. And we pray towards that end in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.